so yeah, in in other words, <laughs> to put it simply, like yes, I think design like typefaces are totally design systems. Welcome back to season two of Design Huddle. It's 2021, new year, new us. Let's get it. We welcome a new host, a new co-host, Mustafa. He is a UX designer for Google Chrome. He has over 20 years of design experience. I could not be more excited to have him on board. He has a ton of stories and tips for everyone. He'll keep you entertained and coming back for more. And in today's episode, it's packed as always. We're talking McDonald's packaging and redesign, how influencers are are pursuing the perfect Instagram selfie, are endangering wildlife, and also the carbon footprint of your website. It's a packed episode. Let's get into it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, welcome back to Design Huddle, a podcast where two internet friends break down UX and everything in between. This week Ryan is out, unfortunately, but um, I have a guest that we're going to be interviewing today. Uh, I've worked with this guest for a long time. He's very well known in the design community, especially around design systems and typography. Uh, He's probably best known for his hatred of icons and always um, crapping on me for my love of them. So I'd like to introduce Liam Spradlin. Hello, Liam. Hey. Hey, so why right. do you hate icons, Liam? Uh, I I don't hate icons. I just have a really complex relationship with icons. <laughs> Please do explain. I think I think um, you know we've worked on projects together with uh, a lot of icons, <laughs> and I think I think there's something like like a lot of characteristics of a design system. They're like something that serves a purpose and like in some contexts they're really great and in other contexts they're not and that like it's completely contextual uh so i don't hate them but i am i am cautious with them do you think like we're a bit like because you know you have like the design thought leaders and we've spoken about this like loads of times do you think we're a bit too absolutionist like we say either it's a one or the other rather than like we always seem to fail to talk about the context of things because most times when someone comes to a topic they're coming with the baggage of their career and everything that they've done in between that and so they're speaking about that i mean do you feel that we our, our industry is a bit too like no the yes or no rather than maybe which is really annoying for new designers but yeah what do you think i i think i think most of the time when someone asks me a design question my answer boils down to like it depends um, and I try to be really mindful of that in my work. But yeah, I think there is a thing like in the world of design, especially as it relates to tech and business, that, you know, we want to find absolute answers. We want to appear to have absolute answers. We're rewarded for having absolute answers. People want things like best practices and recipes that they can follow for certain things. Um, which is all totally understandable. And I think that like those things might exist in certain contexts, but yeah, I think in general, I, I 
try to really monitor how often I'm making an absolute statement about something design related because I just don't think that operating that way all the time is realistic. Do you think it's down to um, laziness or is it just like the business need of getting something done really quickly that you just want the answer? I think it's human nature. I think that I think that we have I think that to some extent there's like um, at least, you know, sometimes I feel this like a natural aversion from ambiguity. And so, yeah, I think especially when you're thinking about building something for other people and building something that's relevant to a business, um, the stakes feel a little elevated. So having an absolute answer is like super appealing. Yeah. So um, just taking it back a bit, um, how did you get into design? And where, how did your career begin before you became this famous systems designer? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's that that really gives me a lot of uh, a lot of space to fill <laughs> to, to get all the way to famous designer. I'm not sure if I'm even there yet, but um, well, my, my bar of famous, yeah. my, my bar of famous is Twitter followers. So if someone has more followers on Twitter, then they're more famous, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm not sure how accurate that is, but yeah, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't count on it, but um, my journey to design, as I think a lot of folks in this space would say uh, was kind of not linear. Um, I didn't study design in school. Uh, I studied art and sociology and like, I think you could draw a connection there if you tried. Um, <laughs> but it probably, there, yeah, I mean, it probably, it probably is. I mean, cause design does come from art, right? I mean, it's like a child of art. Yeah. I, I think that's another thing that I've, I've opinions on like the relationship between art and design and where and how much they overlap. Uh, but, but that's what I studied. Um, I eventually got into design just because that was both, it was something that I was interested in. And one of my first jobs out of college was working at uh, an experiential marketing place. And that led me to getting into like interactive displays and things like that. So that, those were like the first interactive things that I really designed. And then from there, I just started trying to make things for the devices I was using. And that led me to Android. And then that led me to um, technology, generally like exploring other platforms, uh, which then led me to a job in New York where I was building for phones and sidewalk kiosks and oh, cool. kitchen appliances and shoes. <laughs> So you, was he designing the UI for the apps with that or actually designing the products themselves? Mostly the UI. And so uh, so that's almost like service design type things because you're kind of how people I don't know, buy shoes, I suppose, um, which is an interesting yeah. field within itself because it's it just takes it, the experience starts outside of digital and then meets in digital, then it leaves digital. So I always find that yeah. kind of interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool. Um but one thing you said was um, Android. A lot of designers have no idea about Android. Like they basically try to take iOS patterns and just color them in Android material design style. But did you actually have like a background of Android stuff prior to your eventual job that where you work now? Yeah, um, my first, I guess like my first real smartphone was an Evo 4G. I remember at the time, like I was on a Palm uh centro before that 
Yeah. And I thought that was like the coolest thing ever. But then like smartphones started coming out and like touch screens became, yeah, yeah. Uh, or at least capacitive touch screens became a big deal. Um, and I remember at the time, like uh, it was time for me to upgrade my phone and I was looking and I looked at iPhones because I knew tons of people with iPhones, obviously. But then I was like, everybody I know has iPhones. Like I want to try something else. So then I was yeah. looking at the Android phones and I had no clue really about android at the time uh but i picked up the evo and then from there i started getting into like the customization scene which was huge back then uh like installing yeah. custom roms and themes what, and what and year was stuff. this then roughly speaking um 2010 times or was it a bit earlier than that i would say it was probably about 2010 yeah yeah maybe like in the summer or fall that's pretty cool uh, i mean what i mean for the designers out there who are iOS primarily users and they have to design for Android, um, and we were going to get into the design system stuff in a bit, but what would you say the primary difference is in terms of user interactions there? Because there's obviously going to be crossover, hamburger menus, bottom navigation, all that. But what would you say? Would you say there are key differences between um, patterns and expectations from your experience? I guess I would start with talking about like the differences in the system itself like the the platform and how like the operating system influences the way that apps work yeah uh like android i think has a little bit more complex of a of an app structure in terms of how history is created and like where things live conceptually um compared to ios i would also say like uh, I mean, yeah, I guess, I guess we'll get into systems later, but there's, there are a lot of, uh, like components that are functionally similar on both platforms that would be presented different visually or have different expectations yeah. in terms of what they can contain. Um, yeah, I, I think those are the two main things. Like there, there are like predispositions of design on each platform i think that that are just kind of a, a vibe that you have to <laughs> yeah get accustomed to but so if you were to say be a first time i mean what would your advice be to like um an ios user or an ios designer who's going to get into the android space like to understand the platform to understand the system even before you get into like the material design system what would you say would be um the first step into learning about the platform I mean, honestly, I think in the ideal world, the answer would be to use it. So yeah. like if you're at a company that has the resources to get a device for you to just try things, try your own app, try other apps on the platform, I think that's like the absolute quickest way to get a feel for it. Yeah. So but literally live with the device for like a week or a month. Yeah. To really understand. All right, cool. Um. So moving on from like you were doing system design slash UX design in New York, what happened next in the chronicles of Liam? Uh, so what happened next from the time that I worked at the agency building like all kinds of weird stuff? Uh, I think like what was happening at the same time as that was that I was really involved in the GDE community at the time, Google Developer Experts. Yeah. So I was giving a lot of talks and like engaging with a lot of startups from the position that I was in, helping them with design. And then uh, 
you know, I ended up coming to Google because there was a position open that was pretty much exactly what I was doing then, like, you know, being a designer and talking about design. And that was like an official job rather than being, you know, in the daytime, I did one thing and in the nighttime, I did the other as like a side gig. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that must have been pretty, because uh, I mean, I, I had a very similar path. And when that happened, that was like the dream face Like you know, you yeah. can do design, ugh, I can't speak, you can do design and also talk about design. Um, yep. And so that kind of led you towards working on designing systems, uh, specifically material design. Um, for those who don't know, could you explain material design? Is that even possible? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I can try. I can try without without saying our like one line slogan. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I would say like material design is a design system. Uh, it's made by Google. It started off as something that Google needed and expanded to something that could address the needs of designers and developers outside Google. Um, it's based on like a few key pillars, I would say. There's like the design guidance, there's open source code for the components, uh, and then there's like all of the resources and content and talks and things that my team also does to like bring it all together and make it usable. So is it, would so, you say it's like, it's like, a? I mean, I've heard people describe it as like branding guidelines crossed with a system, um, system spec, but it seems to be a bit more deeper than just like a, a page of just, this is how you do a bottom sheet. This is how you do a blah, yeah. blah, blah. There seems to be a lot more thought that goes into it. Yeah. I mean, I think something that's cool about material, especially when it first launched is that, um, for a lot of folks in the Android community, the guidance was broad enough to serve as like an introduction to design period. Yeah. Um, so like, yeah, we have the components and we have guidelines about how to use the components. Like here's how you use an app bar. Here's when you should use bottom nav, whatever. Uh, but then, you know, to back up our point of view on those things, there's also like foundational knowledge that needs to come in. So we have guidance about layout grids and typography and all of this other stuff that kind of like underpins how you use the components to give people like a deeper understanding of design as a discipline in the practical terms that they need to make a product. Can you give an example of something that you learned that you didn't know when you first joined as in the foundational stuff of design that you think is actually quite critical? I'm asking about three questions in one there. <laughs> I think, yeah, I mean, I think, um, Something that, that taught me a lot was when I saw the team working on dark theme guidelines for material, yeah. um, especially having come from the customization scene, like the concept of a dark theme was not new to me, but the nuance with which you could manipulate colors in a digital environment and like the meaning of that and how it impacted the experience, um, like they went really deep on that. And I learned a lot from that. I also learned a ton from uh, our researchers, you know, who have like a hundred different versions of a text field and figure out like, here's how thick the outline should be and where the label should go. And like all of these extremely nuanced things that are based on how people actually use it in these huge tests, which is something that I didn't have the resources for in previous positions. And I think a lot of people out there don't as well. Yeah. Yeah, and I always found like the scale in which um, research can be done and just like where you can learn and find things out 
is is a pretty phenomenal space to be in. Um, the thing which I always found interesting was when I got into say um, uh, big tech, accessibility on the web was a thing, but it was always like it has to be double A, triple A, and no one really knew what that was. Um, and thing which I learned about like design systems in general is like accessibility first, like color contrast. You kind of you knew, but there was no. Does I mean design college doesn't teach that stuff foundationally as a thing because we were taught like as graphic designers who eventually became um the industry as it is um i mean how do you feel about the way that the industry now designs do you think the community has moved on to be much more a higher bar rather than everyone designing bootstrap sites i mean what was your thoughts on that <laughs> i think bootstrap sites are valid i'll say that first <laughs> yeah but I, but I think in terms of uh, design in tech, I think we have a long way to go. Um, I mean, it's it's interesting to me to see how design systems in the community keep up with the pace of like technological development. Like I'm always fascinated by how systems take advantage of the capabilities of device. Like, um, like typography is one example. It can become a lot more nuanced and support a lot more character sets once we got like higher density displays. Yeah. Um, and they're also like, effects i mean the whole concept of like building a ui based on an actual life metaphor with paper is something that like does require a lot of computing power kind of <laughs> so um, uh, you're talking about specifically say like the shadows and stuff and material and the concept of i mean where does the term material come from for those who don't know i'll let you give yeah, that I spiel mean, as well <laughs> I wasn't around back when it was invented, but the story that I always heard was that someone asked the question, like, what is the interface made out of? Um, yeah. And so it was kind of an exploration of, like, can we say that there is a material here? And if we can, like, what is it and how does it behave? And of course, I think, like, material design as a system is hugely informed by graphic design. And there are many people on the team who were graphic designers previously. Um, so I think paper felt like a natural metaphor It's it, and it works really well. Um, but since we're like inside a phone or a tablet or a computer, uh, it can do stuff that paper in real life can't do. Yeah. I mean, do you think people, users of the devices or people in general, actually get the metaphors? Because that's always the things like we, we can come up with these theories of how people behave, but do they understand and do they respond and react? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think ideally when someone's using an interface, they don't stop and, and say, like, I get this or like this, <laughs> this, this card goes underneath the app bar because it's lower than that. It's something that's like maybe not even perceived or even felt, but like the result of it is something tangible, which is that the person can it's successfully do what yeah. they want to do. Yeah, and I think if it's like... Because I think UX design sort of sits under the banner of information design. And information design is never supposed to be noticed as opposed to advertising and display design. It's, it's, the whole purpose mm -hmm. is to be noticed. So um, it's a bit like you don't ever say, well, maybe you might do actually. I was thinking, it's, you know, IKEA are like seen as like amazing UX designers. Well, they don't ever call themselves that. But you don't say, oh, this is an amazing chair, but then you might do if it's really comfy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if we have the digital kin. Oh, my God, this button's ripple is so amazing. <laughs> I mean, like, me and you might say that, sure. <laughs> but... <laughs> yeah, but then, you know, we have no life. Uh, well, I don't, anyway. <laughs> what, uh, so looking at, I suppose, iOS, which is the other big, like, huge platform, um, mm -hmm. would you say, 
what would you say the, the the stark differences between the two are as like in terms of the systems design are there or have we've reached a point where things are oops where things are kind of like crossing over where there is almost no difference maybe slight subtle things like american english and british english or is it actually much more detailed than that i want to say both like both platforms I guess could be called uh, expressions of the concept of a design system with different dialects. Yeah, if that makes sense. Like I think that I think that each platform has an equally nuanced expression of their system, but they just have different ideas about what the UI is made out of, how it should respond, uh, how things should be structured, things like that. Yeah, I always found, uh, maybe this is just from the examples I've seen, but iOS seems to rely on gestures quite a lot with some powerful features, which, um, you know, I've given talks about this, like there's features which no one's ever seen, but is that like, so we're just selecting text. If you hold down the space bar, the whole thing, the whole keyboard becomes a trackpad. And people are amazed when they see that for the first time. Um, but I don't know if, does Android really rely on that as much? I don't know. I mean, the hidden UX always scares me because especially if there's like core things which um, the user relies on to navigate something. Uh, but I don't know, but then pull to refresh has become quite natural and normal. I don't know. What do you think about that gesture navigation? Yeah, I think that sort of thing exists in like an interesting conversation because there's, I mean, on the one hand, yeah, like, critical actions that are needed to successfully use an app can't be hidden. Um, on the other hand, if there are hidden things, like, you know, as you said, people are blown away when they discover using the spacebar as a trackpad or whatever, because it's not a critical function, but it does generate some, like, excitement and positive sentiment for the platform when it is discovered. Then on a third hand, <laughs> there's, like, like you said, pull to refresh is something that I don't know if there's a real world analog to that kind of motion that would make it discoverable outside of its own context. So once people discover it, there's this thing that happens where the pattern becomes known by people who are using these devices. Yeah. And then it becomes something that exists everywhere. The danger in that, like going back to the other side, is that there are people who will start using these devices for the first time and haven't been part of this like long conversation of these patterns becoming, you know, starting off as one thing and then becoming known and then becoming a standard. Um, so like that will end up creating more considerations in the long run because these folks still have to like learn all of that history. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose. Um, and. I mean, what what kind of things in the real world do? I mean, imagine if you had your chest of drawers with your underwear in it. You can't pull it, and then oh look, it's all clean now. <laughs> like like this yeah. is free. actually. Well, then having said like jokes aside, maybe blinds is kind of like where it possibly comes from. You know, like curtain blinds where you pull down and yeah. it opens. Perhaps is where the metaphor. I don't mm -hmm. know. That I mean, it'd be interesting where like pinch to zoom seems like such a natural thing now, but then I'm biased with. 10 plus years of being educated that this is the way you do things right um but it's just that natural thing of how does i mean how do you it's like how do you design that i'm someone's like how do you design a letter not like 
as a typeface, but how do you actually design the concept of a letter? That seems yeah. to be like like that. I can imagine in that space when the designers were first coming up these concepts, that must have been a very wild time. Um, like a moment in time where you don't even realize that you're actually doing something quite interesting. Um, yeah, I th that kind of conversation is like the space where I think, like this is why, <laughs> this is why it's. Uh, maybe this is a hot take, but but maybe these spaces are where it's easy to see how appealing it is to believe that design, like designing technology is uh, a magical or somehow very special and unique thing. Even though like I'm of the opinion that it's not, I can see how you could see like pulling the blinds up and conceptually your perception of the space occupied by the window is completely different because now you see a three-dimensional world outside or yeah. if you think like i have a four by six photograph like what would it be like if i could just tug on that and it gets way bigger you know and then you can translate that into a screen and like that's pretty cool that's pretty unique yeah no it's pretty amazing but the question is is like um in the lab we it's like these eureka moments it goes back to what you said is um you can have any kind of design system and a lot of these things are opinionated but does the person understand instinctively to do the thing that you wanted them to do is the question mm -hmm. um and that i suppose is the the journey every designer <laughs> ux design has to go on is we come up with all these views and opinions based on our baggage that we carry with us but um is it right? Is it correct? I mean, I've had some very sobering experiences when I take stuff into UX research thinking, oh no, the thing which I believed for all this time is not true. Um, but yes. then that's always good. <laughs> it's always, I actually yeah. find that fun because being proven wrong with, and hearing someone describe your design is always hilarious, I find. Um, but moving on with that, you've also, in as the talking and community aspect has become your job, your nighttime hustle, as it were, seems to have evolved into typography. Uh, or designing typefaces. So can you talk about how you've gone about designing type? How'd you get into designing typefaces? Sure. Um, I think the first like quote unquote typeface I ever designed, um, I made because I wanted to design something for Android. Like I wanted to make a watch face with like a unique kind of modular typeface, just as like a graphic design expression of some sort yeah um and then i really liked it so i kept going and like made it a complete kind of font i don't know if it's still online but um that's then, not wakehurst you know, is it sorry that's not wakehurst is it or was that oh no it was uh it was before that um but from there like i started looking into formal type design instruction because I had a bunch of books and things, but it's, it's really hard to sit down. I mean, for me, it's hard to be disciplined enough to like sit down and uh, teach myself all the things that you would need to learn in a class. And I also think that like being in a class environment and having access to other students and teachers and critiques and things is super important. Yeah. So uh, I started looking into classes at the Cooper union in New York. Um, and I think part of it also is that I think for me, I do my best work when I'm also learning some other thing, which is also like why I started Design Notes, like learning about other types of design and talking to people about that 
helps my design practice. So I started taking classes um, at Cooper Union and I ended up doing it for like two years. I went through their whole uh, extended type design program and uh, created a few different typefaces. One of them is available publicly, Girasol. Um, the other two are not, but I will finish them someday. <laughs> and yeah, I, I learned a lot. Um, what do you actually design the typefaces in? Is it like Illustrator and plus a type making software or? So something like designing a typeface, and this is something that terrified me about the process because typically like I use Illustrator or something like that to sketch with. Yeah. Um, but terrifyingly, the process for type design always starts with paper. Yeah. So we took a lot of classes on calligraphy and uh, pencil sketching and things like that. Because the other thing is like um, type design is another one of those things where there's like an immense, unimaginable amount of history behind it. And so all of these things, like when you see a digital font, you're not thinking about how the letters are influenced by physical writing tools and like the ways that people rendered these letters in the past, but they are. And that like those things that are unspoken and like never explained to anyone are the things that make them readable. Yeah. Um, so we had to learn all of that first. Then once you have your sketches, you uh, will scan them in to digitize them. And we used a program called Robofont, uh, yeah, yeah. which is, uh, I believe it's open sourced and it's all based on Python. So there's like a huge, amazing community building extensions and tools for it. Uh, but that's the tool that we used for like making the actual typeface. So to summarize, like when you're starting off the typeface, let's say you've actually, um, you've learned the history of the contrast of the different shapes and stuff and evolution. Um, you're sketching out loads of shapes to get whatever the the, the shape is. You mm -hmm. scan that in. Do you take that into Illustrator or do you go straight into Robofont? Um, straight into Robofont. I think I think some people have Illustrator as part of their workflow, but I always just put it in Robofont, and I would have the sketches on like a separate layer. So okay, uh, then you can kind of trace over them. So Robofont's a bit like a. It's kind of like Illustrator vector drawing tool, but it, the tools are designed to design the, to draw the shapes of the font, right? Yeah, I exactly. think I may have used it. I think a long time ago, I designed like an icon, <laughs> an icon font. I'm sure you hate me now. You more. Um, <laughs> I've um, done it too. It's. <laughs> I think I think it's called Glyphs was the app. I mean, we're talking. This is mm -hmm. quite a long time ago, uh, and even yeah, before Glyphs that, another popular one. Uh, I mean, that's a paid for one. I remember years ago when I was in university. I think it was called Fontographer. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't think it even runs on a Mac anymore because it's so legacy. But. Um, you could literally copy the uh, vector from Illustrator and copy and paste it into like, I, I'm not, you can probably tell me what it is, but you know, it's like the chart of every single letter that you get. It's almost mm -hmm. like, um, is, it does that have a name? I don't know. Uh, it's basically a bunch of squares and it has like little labels with like A, B, C, whatever. Yeah. And you just copy paste the letters direct into them and then you could export it. Um, so most designers in college just created like the sort of display fonts that, you know, crazy sure. looking ones. Um, so just more interesting about how would you pronounce it? Is it Gisaro? Gisaro Sol? Gira Sol. sorry. I mean, I'm, I'm <laughs> probably read. also not doing it justice because it's a Portuguese word, but. Oh, uh, whatever. Uh, <laughs> but th that was actually based on, um, street signs. 
if mm-hmm. I'm not correct. So how did you go about thinking of that as a, as a means of inspiration? Um, I got inspired just by like seeing the actual street signs in person. Um, so you were in Portugal then? Yeah. Uh, I have a few friends there. One of my good friends, Francisco, who I've worked with since the beginning of my Android journey. He's an Android developer who makes like amazing customization tools and stuff like that. Like he has a custom kernel for Android and like yeah. a bunch of apps, um, some of which I designed. <laughs> oh, cool. Um, but so he lives in Portugal and um, I'd been there a few times to visit him and go to his wedding there and everything. So it, it, it was an area of the country that was meaningful for me. And one year I was there for, I don't know, like a week or two. And as I, as I was walking around, I kept noticing the street signs, which had these like beautiful, uh, had like beautiful hand lettering and, the street names around the area where I was staying were all like named after flowers. And I just thought like there was so much beauty there. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if that makes sense, but I pay a lot of attention sometimes to like environmental details. And I think yeah. there's like so much to, to see there. And so I started really paying attention to these street signs because also the style of the lettering seemed so unique to me and like, very opinionated and uh just really exactly what it was like a complete expression of itself which i really appreciated so i started i started drawing the letters just for fun and then once i realized how fun it was then i started going around and taking pictures of all the street signs that i could find yeah so that i could find because the other thing is that the street signs were created by multiple artists they at least in the area where i was they all belonged to the same uh, team which was part of a ceramic studio but there were different artists and you could see kind of uh, vocabulary of these letters starting to develop so I collected all the samples that I could and started digitizing them and then I just decided to like keep going and eventually it became a typeface so would you say I mean to bring it back to the design system conversation would you say there's a lot of crossover between design systems and the design of a typeface? Because when I was in Portugal, the one thing I noticed is they do a lot of stuff with ceramic in signs mm-hmm. and a lot of mosaic. There seems to be like a very cultural thing there. Um, so do you see that there's parallels between that, like the, the process of designing components from scratch and designing typeface? Like you start off with the one, I'm going to keep speaking for you. Uh, <laughs> you start off with a, ba- a base concept. I mean, what, how would you describe that? Or am I just yeah, I mean, finding connections where there isn't really connections? On on a cosmic scale, I think everything is a system. So yes, I automatically think the typefaces are a system. But beyond that, I do think the typefaces are a design system too. Um, and even in the software, like it's encoded there too. We have the concept of components and things like that. And I think similar to the design systems that we work with every day, um, this, the starting point for a functional typeface is, you know, what problem is this solving? Like, what is this going to do? Why is this needed? Um, I think that a lot of people get intimidated by that question when designing typefaces because they, you know, it was kind of like a joke during class, like, does the world really need another, <laughs> like another version of Caslon? Um, <laughs> Like, maybe it does. I don't know. The The fact, this is a tangent, but, like, the fact that you're making it will make it something new. Um, 
but the same as a design system, like it's something that's meant to address a certain need or role or problem. So like that's the starting point. Then in solving that problem, you start with a limited set of artifacts. So in type design, you often start with lowercase n, for Latin character sets, I should clarify, you start with the lowercase n-o-p and capital H-o-d, and those are like your control characters, Why? like the starting point. Um, they Those are the control characters and your starting point because they represent most of the shapes that you're going to encounter in the rest of the letters. Um, the only one that is absent, I think, is diagonals, but you have your round characters, arches, stems, like all of that stuff is in there. So you start with those characters, start spacing them, and then from there you can build a ton of other letters, and then you start to see how the system is fitting together. And just like a design system also, it's like an iterative process. Yeah. And also like a design system, there's going to be times where someone is using your font and they need to customize something about it to fit the specific use case. So you're designing with like all of these things in mind. And I would add that like a typeface, from my experience, I, I think it's hard or even impossible to say that a typeface is ever done in the same sense that I don't feel that a design system can ever truly be like a static, uh, yeah. unchanging forever thing. So yeah, in in other words, <laughs> to put it simply, like yes, I think design like typefaces are totally design systems. Yeah. Uh, just to go back even to the beginning of the conversation, yeah. um, it does, like you said, does it the need for it to exist? Well, I mean, I was going to say, well, does any art piece of art need to exist? And I thought, well, you said that there was a difference between art and design, or maybe there isn't. Um, I always, I mean, from my the history of, of the language, the word design, I, I used to meet with um, an organization in the UK called the RSA, so the Royal Society of Arts, and they run like the oldest design competition, uh, design competition in the world. And the first question I asked him is, why do you say arts? And I said, oh, you know, this is like a 90-year-old competition. Way back when, we never used to say design. It was called industrial arts. That's the way the term is. And then I don't know in the history of the language where, where that was changed with design. Um, so from that conversation, I thought, oh, right. So basically, you do art for self and design is just something that's commercial. It's just way back when a painter doing it for like a religious building as a piece of art versus someone who's just doing like a wedding portrait and that's just like almost the equivalent of a photographer um mm. but then obviously the mediums become where design has become very digital like that, what people's perception but what, what's your feeling of like because i know we've had this conversation as well you say design is an art or is a design what do you think i've just said about 20 different things there so pick one and run with it i think i think it is hard for me to say that anything created with intent is not art that is too big of a statement to make but <laughs> um so we're, but we're here I mean, to make statements <laughs> like what what i mean by that is that um i i guess i'll just say like i think i wrote a whole piece about this on medium that art like design is art yeah like it is and i think i think people um particularly in our space in tech i think people like to think that design is like doing something that art can't do or something like that. But I think, you know, I think the perception comes down to the intent of the work. And in design, we think that 
our work is uniquely solving people's problems or affecting them in some way. Um, like when I talk with Rob Giampietro, who's a, a colleague of ours, um, about this topic, he talked about how design is such a transformative discipline because you're deciding things about how people experience their lives. But I would argue in a similar sense, like art can be anything from documenting the reality that you see to getting people to think about things in a different way to getting people yeah. to engage with things much in the same way as design. So I think, I think that spending time um, delineating between the two and somehow claiming a separate space for design is probably not a very good use of time <laughs> <laughs> in public discourse. But why not? This is a podcast, so... <laughs> and, um... Yeah, oh, sure. <laughs> in a podcast, absolutely. <laughs> but but I, think, I think people have really strong opinions about this, and I think... Um... Why do you think that is? I mean, was it because they want to establish that they're a designer and not an artist or that they're an artist and a designer i mean who cares i mean who cares like what whatever you create whatever like that's my view i mean yeah <laughs> but then i I, quite... I i feel the same way but i think i think that socially there are um embedded ideas or received knowledge about what art is and isn't and how valuable it is to society um like nfts and, sorry I yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh god, that's, god that's... yeah <laughs> um and it kind of goes back to earlier in the conversation again when we were talking about like people liking to have absolute answers people view design as a space where absolute answers exist and art is not a space where absolute answers exist yeah but i think i think the notion of absolute answers is itself an illusion further yeah. breaking down the barrier between the two <laughs> absolutely um well just to cap it all off uh where can people reach you i know you have your your relaunching uh design notes the very famous mm -hmm. uh podcast again um twitter uh, you're not on instagram though are you because you hate social media nope i've left oh well that's where all but the cool kids still on are twitter. apparently <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah so you run the design notes um is there any other anything else that you're up to before we go you want to talk about uh, yeah, I would just say, you know, the Design Notes podcast, I'm on Twitter, I'm still working on typefaces, my website is just iamliam, iamli.am, <laughs> so you can keep up with all my stuff there. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for um, taking time to be to do this. Um, so yeah, just say thank you to our listeners. Um, check out uh, the rest of the podcast, and also we've like launched a YouTube channel where we cut up the interviews into small clips so people can have bite-sized stuff. So thanks a lot, and see you next time. Yeah, thanks. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Design Huddle. The opinions expressed are solely our own and do not express the views or opinions of our employer.